We're told in the we're told in the prophet we're told in the prophet Isaiah that God looks upon those who tremble at His word, and we have the opportunity to do that now. So I would invite you to open up in your Bibles to First Timothy chapter six, and as you are doing so, to stand for the reading of God's holy word. First Timothy chapter six. <clears throat> and we're actually going to confine ourselves this morning to just the first two verses of First Timothy chapter 6. So I'll begin reading in verse 1. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what Christ would say to the churches. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Take your seats, please. You, you do realize, don't you, that half of your waking hours are spent working. You ever think about that? That you spend half of your life punching a clock. And even more than that, if you are a small business owner or if you are a stay-at-home mom. And that's because they just work way more hours than a typical 40-hour work week. And, and, and so I guess my question at the front end is, well, how do you feel about that? How does, how does that hit you? Perhaps a better question would be, does spending half of your life working at your job, whether it is in a cubicle or in a truck or behind a cash register or on a computer or in your home, does spending half of your life doing that stuff, does it matter? Does it have any value? Does it have any worth? Or is it a waste of time? Beloved, does God care about how you spend half your waking life? And the answer, of course, is a resounding yes. God does care. As we come to the beginning of chapter 6, we come really to uh, the end of a section in Paul's letter here. For, se for several sermons, we've seen how Paul is applying the gospel to various groups or segments within the church. At the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul addressed the young and the old, men and women. And then after that, Paul spoke directly to widows and gave instruction concerning how to care for widows in the church. Then you remember at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul laid out instructions regarding elders or pastors. And now here, as we start 1 Timothy chapter 6, we are going to see Scripture's words addressed to verse 1, bondservants, or more literally, slaves. But of course, it's just at this point that we immediately have a problem. And the reason that we have a problem is, given our nation's history, we can generally only hear that word slaves one way. We immediately think of, of racism, of kidnapping, of whips. 
And we, as Christians, should be the first to say that that is evil. It, it is sinful. We should call it what it is. But, and this is very important to understand, the slavery of the first century Roman Empire was not, I repeat, not like the slavery of 19th century America. The civil war that was fought on our land was generally over a slavery that was racial and lifelong. But we need to know that, that neither were the case in Paul's day. Truth be told, it was quite different altogether. To set the stage, you need to understand that during the writing of the New Testament, it is estimated that there were over 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. To put that into perspective, in larger cities like Ephesus, which is where Timothy labored, slaves made up a huge population, a huge percentage of the people in the city. How huge, you ask? Well, it is estimated that roughly one-third of all people in Ephesus were slaves. That's massive. But again, these slaves or these bond servants, it was not like the chattel slavery that we think of. Sure, slaves did menial work in Ephesus, but really they did all kinds of work. Some slaves were clerks, cashiers, bookkeepers, but others were doctors, teachers, and administrators. Some slaves were custodians, but it might shock you that some slaves were also CEOs. It wasn't uncommon for slaves to be more educated than their owners. And perhaps strange to our ears, these slaves, in many cases, they owned property, and in many cases, slaves had their own slaves. And on top of all of this, slaves also saved the money that they earned to purchase their freedom, which history tells us many did before they reached the age of 30. So I want to reiterate, no ethnicity was targeted. Fact is, you would not be able to tell a slave from a free person simply by their outward appearance or the color of their skin. These same slaves, in most cases, they had all sorts of upward mobility, which also meant that you'd find these slaves in all but the highest of economic and social strata. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not suggesting that being a slave in the first century was cush. It was not a vacation. But again, it was not what we are accustomed to think of when we hear the word slavery. Some slaves in the first century had it good while some slaves had it pretty bad. But at a fundamental level, it was not on par with our nation's dark past. So given that all too brief historical sketch, we need to ask as we come to the passage in front of us, does this passage have anything to say to us today? Does it have any relevance to us? And the answer is yes. And I say that because while we want to be sure that this is not a one-to-one -one correspondence, in a lot of ways, the closest parallel to what was taking place in 1 Timothy 6 for us would be the economic relationship 
that exists between employees and employers. Again, where you and I spend half our waking hours. So that's how we're going to go after this passage this morning. We're going to make a connection between bond servants and how they are like employees and masters and how they are like employers. And the big, massive, overarching point not to be missed is this. God has something to say, and that includes come Monday morning. So let's begin where Scripture begins. That is, if you have an unbelieving boss. That's the context, right? When you wake up tomorrow and you go punch the clock, if you do it for a non-Christian, if that is true of you, then verse 1 is directed specifically to you. We are told that all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. So the bondservants, again, those are literally the slaves. These are the, the workers. And the masters there in verse 1, those are the unbelieving bosses. And you, as a Christian, have been called to work for them. And it's work. It really is work, right? Many of you would not do your job if they did not pay you. And the reason is because it is work. When verse 1 speaks of being under a yoke, a literal yoke was a frame that was placed over the top of an animal, and it was used to control them, to make sure that they did what you, the master, wanted them to do. And let's be honest, for some of you who are going to punch the clock tomorrow, that is a very apt metaphor, isn't it? You feel like cattle. You feel the weight of that heavy yoke upon your neck and upon your shoulders. Mondays are awful. The work is, is demeaning. It's long hours. You, you sort of feel like a beast with this thing fixed upon you. Well, brother or sister, if that is true of you, if you hate your job, or if you find your job to be mind-numbing or, or of no value, if you just dread the idea of the alarm clock going off tomorrow, if that's you, let me say two quick things. The first is, work is both good and bad. Work is both good and bad. And I say that because you and I, we tend, I think, to think that work is something that happened after the fall. We tend to think of work, the 8 to 5, the Monday through Friday, that it's sort of a, a necessary evil. But it's not the case. Back in paradise, before sin entered the world, before the fall, before that serpent slithered into the Garden of Eden, before everything went wonky, if, if you were to look for Adam and Eve, where would you find them? Well, you would find them in the Garden. And what would you find them doing? Working. You would find them working. And so the point is that like marriage and like the Sabbath, work is a creation ordinance, meaning it's something that God has built into the very nature of our world, and he built it into the nature of our world before sin, which means it is 
good. Or to use the language of Gen Genesis 1.31, it is very good. Work is good. Now granted, just like marriage and just like the Sabbath, these things are now marred by sin. I'm not suggesting there's no difference between pre-Genesis 3 and post-Genesis 3. But just as marriage is a gift today, and just as the Sabbath is a gift to us today, so also is work. And we should thank God because we get to mirror Him each Monday morning by our working and laboring and creating. It's part of you and I being made in the very image of God. This is why, not just spiritually, but, but physically and emotionally, it is so damaging to people when they don't work. This is true, not just of the 20 and 30-year-olds, but you find this same thing in people that get to that 65-year age when they retire. They don't know what to do with themselves. And that's because for their whole life, they have found their identity in this very thing. And now they're sort of forced out, and, and they don't know what to do with themselves. But, of course, something has happened in Genesis 3. God's Word tells us that when sin came into the world, things became cursed. And that means work also became cursed. Or maybe to use a word that we're more familiar with, we, work is hard now, isn't it? We can say that. Work is often hard. Listen to some of the language of God speaking to Adam. Cursed is the ground because of you. God goes on to say, In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, we are told, the earth shall bring forth for you. God tells Adam, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. So cursed, pain, thorns and thistles, sweat. This is sort of Bible talk for saying to us, work now is hard. It's tough. It's difficult. But our work now, even in a fallen world and for a fallen boss, a sinful boss, it is still good. It's still good. Just as little Susie's kindergarten coloring, which is imperfect and outside of the lines, just as it brings a smile to mommy's face and it goes on the refrigerator, so also are difficult and imperfect labors. They still bring a smile to our Heavenly Father. Which leads me to the second comment for those of you who are struggling come Monday morning. Be faithful. Be faithful, brothers and sisters. Notice, Paul is not here in 1 Timothy chapter 6 making any statements about systemic injustices or social inequalities. And neither is Paul offering any moral evaluation of slavery in the context of the first century Roman Empire. He's not doing any of that. What is he doing? He is simply instructing Christians to be faithful in the various stations that they find themselves in. So Christian, be faithful. 
as you head to the office tomorrow, be assured, know in your heart of hearts that Christ is with you. Know, brother or sister, that your labor is not in vain. And be convinced, above all, that your job is to be faithful. To be faithful. On top of that, and here is the command now, as a Christian worker, you were called upon by Christ to give honor to your boss. That's the uncomfortable part of verse 1, right? Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of, here it is, all honor. So, so the command here is for you to honor your boss. Now catch this. We've seen this idea of honor several times already, haven't we? In 1 Timothy 5.3, we are exhorted to honor widows who are truly widows. We saw last week in 1 Timothy 5.17 that elders who, are, uh, who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. And so what Paul is saying is just as we owe our widows and just as we owe our pastors honor, right? Respect, esteem, reverence. So we owe our bosses this same honor. You ready? Even our unbelieving bosses. To which you shake your head. Perhaps you protest. You, you, you say, Pastor, my boss is a wretch. You don't know that guy or, or that gal. He doesn't deserve that. He, he's not even a Christian. Fair enough. But let's think through that for just a brief moment. Do you really want to be treated as you deserve by your boss? What if your boss saw all the stuff that you did when he wasn't looking? Or do you really want to be treated as you deserve by Christ? Do you really think that your boss is more of a wretch than you, especially before you were converted? You see, church, what we are immediately confronted with is the reality that the gospel really does come to transform all of us and all of life. We do not have the luxury of sort of conveniently quarantining off our Christianity and putting it in this like Sunday morning silo. And that is because Christ is Lord over all, and that includes Monday mornings. And Christ then, as our Lord, calls us to honor our unbelieving bosses, even if they don't deserve it. Why? Because, Christian, Christ has shown you grace. And I assure you of this, you do not deserve that grace. But we still squirm, don't we? Why? What, what does it even matter? Well, that leads to the concern. We are told this is important, middle of verse 1, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Christian worker, do you realize that two things are at stake every single Monday morning? God's glory and God's gospel. How you work, right? 
Whether or not you honor your unbelieving boss, your attitude at work, your actions at work, it is all working together to either exalt God's glory and God's gospel, or it is working to extinguish God's glory and God's gospel. As Philip Ryken has put it, if Christians are poor workers, then God and his gospel will be brought into disrepute. And this is because as Christians, we bear the name of Christ. We've been baptized into the name of the triune God. Our, our unbelieving neighbors, they won't often come to church with us. Your unbelieving boss won't come to church. So their only exposure to the Christian faith is you. It's you and I. So with Monday morning just around the corner, I, I want to encourage you. I want to remind you, or maybe for the first time have you consider that for so many of you, your mission field really is your vocation. Do you realize that? Do you realize that each and every one of your coworkers, they have been brought into your life, not through blind chance and time, but through the orchestration of the very sovereign hand of God Almighty. And part of your responsibility as a Christian is to labor in such a way so that God's glory and God's gospel are not drugged through the mud each Monday morning. I don't know about you, but, I, but I've actually heard this a handful of times. I, I have heard, I, I have read that Christian, rather that employers, they, they are skeptical, that they're even cautious really when it comes to hiring Christians. And that's because Christians, at least in the eyes of many corporations, tend to be the worst kind of workers. And I would just say, what an awful testimony. How, how sad and tragic is that? Pagan companies and, and unbelieving bosses and non-Christian organizations, they should be headhunting, looking specifically for Christian workers. We should be the single best workers that our employees have. And that's one way to use the language of verse 1, that we exalt the name of God and keep the gospel from being reviled. Now, I should add, this is true regardless of whether or not your boss is a Christian or non-Christian. Enter verse 2. Because in verse 2, the master is now not an unbelieving master, but he's a, he's a fellow Christian. Verse 2 is clear. Those, that is, those Christian slaves who have believing masters. So, so, so you see, verse 1 is one context, an unbelieving master. Verse 2 is a different context. Now you have a believing master. You have a Christian boss. And in this situation... That is, in the church where Timothy ministered, think about this, the slave and the master in Ephesus, they would have been fellow church members. 
Let that settle upon your mind for a moment. And as it settles upon your mind, consider the implications. Consider the occasion for joy. And consider the potential for tension. Zoom out for a second and and realize that in Ephesus, the unity of the church was at stake. And the unity of the church was at stake because in the congregation, there would have been slaves and there would have been masters and there there would have been ex-slaves. Talk about a powder cake. So given this context a Christian slave having a Christian master, how should the Christian worker relate to his boss? What scriptures command? The worker, middle of verse 2, must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Now, for the sake of clarity, the word that the ESV translates there as disrespectful, it's a compound word. It's made up of the first word being down and the second word to think so literally to think down upon it has the sense of to despise or scorn or to treat with contempt do you see the temptation it is altogether possible for the christian worker to treat his christian boss in inappropriate ways because of their common and shared faith. You can imagine for a moment, perhaps the reasoning would go something like this. We've both come to embrace Christ as he's offered to us in the gospel. We've we've both been baptized into the name of the triune God. We are fellow church members together. We we eat at the same table together each and every Lord's Day. We, We are one in Christ. Amen. And then Monday morning rolls around, and the worker thinks, who does this guy think he is? Why do I have to obey him? How come he gets to tell me what to do? I mean, aren't we all equal before the foot of the cross? And all of a sudden, that Christian slave, that Christian worker's hackles start to go up. Perhaps some of those in Ephesus had developed, and here, bear with me, I'm going to use something of a theological phrase. Perhaps they had what we would call today an over-realized eschatology. In other words, they were right in the fact that the gospel has leveled the playing field when it comes to salvation and grace and glory. But they didn't realize that on this side of glory, we all still have various roles. Dare I say, there is a hierarchy built into this world, built into it by God himself. This is true, of course, in the home and in the church, and it is equally true out in the world come Monday morning. And so unfortunately, it would seem that these Christian workers in Ephesus came down, uh, came to look down upon their Christian bosses. They would despise them, they would resent them, or perhaps worse, they would seek to take advantage of them. 
But as always, Scripture is our compass. It guides us and directs us. And what we are told is that Christian workers must not seek to take advantage of the fact that their boss is also a Christian. And neither should Christian employees look down their noses or harbor any resentment or ill will toward their Christian employers. Just because both you and your boss are Christians, that does not mean that one of you is not the manager come Monday morning. Those realities still exist. This is the world that we live in. Which leads to Paul's concern. He says at the end of verse 2, Rather they, again this is the Christian slaves, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. In other words, Christian worker, if your boss is also a Christian, well then you should serve him all the more, and all the more diligently and joyfully. Why? Well because those who benefit from your labor on Monday morning are fellow Christians. You see, when the guy who signs your check is also a Christian, it should produce in you a more loyal and diligent spirit. And that's because if your boss is a Christian, you're not just serving a Christian brother come Monday morning, you are also serving Christ himself. Now, speaking of Christ, we would do well to think upon him at this point. And I say that because in a very profound sense, Christ is both master and bondservant. That might sound strange, but, but let me tease it out for you. Christ is our master. This is perhaps something that's a little bit easier for us to grasp. Christ is our Lord and our God. Scripture tells us that he is our creator and our sustainer. Christ is both ruler and sovereign. And as king, he who has been invested with all authority in heaven and on earth, he gives to us commands. This is what we call his law. Christ is king. When this world finally runs its course, it will be remade by Christ. When the dead are called forth on that last day, and they are called to stand before God to give an account for their lives, it is the voice of Christ himself who will awaken them and bring them up from the dead. All the world, literally every single thing, no matter how small or how big, it all exists for Christ and for His glory. We, would, we should think of it this way. Christ is the glorious Son that all of creation orbits. Christ is Master. And we belong to Him. 1 Corinthians 6 is powerful. You, Christian, are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Christ owns you. Christ bought you. And therefore, to return back to some of the categories of 1 Timothy 6, he is worthy of all honor, verse 1. And as Christians, we must be very careful not to treat him with disrespect, verse 2. 
Christ is our master and we are his servants. So my exhortation to you, church, would be this. Let us strive to faithfully serve our heavenly master even as we strive to serve our earthly masters. Now, I think that's the part that probably makes the most sense to most of us. And if Christ was only master, that would be enough. Christ need not be anything more than our master, than our king, to be worthy of all our lives. But he's more than that. Christ is also bondservant. If I can go this far, the sovereign Christ is also slave. Consider this. Christ is the greatest bondservant in all of existence. He is the world's single greatest slave. How so, you ask? Well, what is his cross, church, if not the instrument by which he serves us? See, the whole mission of Christ, his, his redemptive rescue mission, is it not him being our servant? Again, if I can go so far, is it not him being a slave? To wrap your mind and heart around this, start from the beginning with me. The very Son of God he who is the eternal second person of the Holy Trinity, who only ever enjoyed the presence of Father and Holy Spirit and partook of eternal and infinite uh, communion in the very Godhead. What does he do but, but come? He, he humbles himself and he comes to us and he comes to our world. It's not for the sake of tradition that we are singing Christmas songs this month. It is because we are celebrating the advent of Christ coming to us. He doesn't come to us as an angel. He doesn't come to us as a ghost. But he actually takes to himself human nature. He, he takes to himself human flesh. Sometimes Christians who are zealous to defend the deity of Christ, and rightfully so, they sometimes tend to forget that Christ actually became a flesh and blood human being just like us. And this incarnation of the Son of God, his humbling of himself to become one of us, it was Christ becoming a bondservant. It was Christ becoming a slave. Now, I say that because of the shocking language of Philippians 2. You remember what we are told? Though Christ was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, literally a slave. It's the same word used in 1 Timothy 6.1. In the incarnation, Christ took the form of a slave being born in the likeness of men. And as a slave, what did Christ do? What was his job? 
if I can put it that way. Well, he perfectly served and obeyed his father. He loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and likewise loved his neighbor as himself. To return to the context of 1 Timothy 6 again, Christ regarded his father as, verse 1, worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the gospel was not reviled. At the same time, he never disrespected his father or his disciples. Christ always treated them with utmost love and respect. before you scratch your head or before you tune out, let, let me remind you, and I trust encourage you, don't think for a split moment that this is all just sort of, sort of theological abstraction. Christ did all of this on your behalf. He obeyed the law you broke. He did for you what you could never do for yourself. I am fairly certain that none of us have regarded our unbelieving masters come Monday morning as worthy of all honor. We could take a poll. You could leave their names and numbers. We could call them up. Neither have we treated our Christian masters with perfect and complete respect. 1 Timothy 6.2 and so when you and I reflect upon Christ as a slave, be assured of this. He is a willing and joyful slave on your behalf. He does it for you. So following Christ's perfect service before his Father, the law of God and the world, what came next? How does this slave's life end? And as you know, it, it ended, and, and really we say, it culminated on a cross. As a slave, not only did Christ willingly and joyfully serve you, he also willingly and joyfully gave up his life for you. This is the trajectory of Philippians 2, right? And being found in human form... He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I so want you to see this with fresh eyes, church. Is Christ our master? Yes, of course, Christ is king. But he's not just our master. He is also our bondservant. And his job, again, if I can use that sort of language, was to work for us, to serve us, to die for us. As a slave to God's will, Christ took all your sin upon himself, and he gave you all his righteousness. We're told in the scriptures that there upon that cross, Christ was made a curse. So much so that the wrath of God that you and I deserve for our sin, it was poured out upon Christ who became sin. 
for us. What all of this means is that if you are a Christian, your debt has been paid. It's done. It's passed. It's over. You have a receipt. You know what the receipt says? The receipt says paid in full. And that receipt is written in the very blood of the Son of God that He shed on your behalf. Then three days later, Christ got up from the dead. This slave was resurrected and returned to heaven to be glorified as God and King. So, so right now, in this very moment, make no mistake about it. Christ is no longer slave. Christ is sovereign. Christ is King. That's where he is now. He's not on the cross. He's, he's not in the tomb. But right now, Christ is seated on his throne seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he is ruling and reigning and making his enemies his footstool. That's what he's doing right now. He is resting from his work. And so in a lot of ways, we've come full circle. I say that because I want you to see that Christ is both master and servant. He is ruler and redeemer. He is sovereign and and sacrifice. He is prince and payment. Beloved, catch this. He became a slave to be your savior. So what does all of this mean for you? Well, it means that right now, in this very moment, you and I are freed up. We, we are not just freed up from sin and its penalty and its power and one day its presence, though we are, that, that's all true. We're freed up from that, but we are also freed up to be the slaves Christ has called us to be. See, that's the paradox. That's the irony. The essence of Christianity is that our master has become our servant so that in turn we would become his slaves. And brothers and sisters, that is true, not just when we gather here, and not just when you get home this afternoon, but it is also true come tomorrow morning. We have been freed up by the blood of Christ to become the men and women that Christ has called us to be. And what I want you to see, that that's true tomorrow too. That's true at 8 o'clock. That's true when the alarm goes off. That's true this whole week. Join with me in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for Christ, he who has become on our behalf the perfect man, a substitute, a sacrifice, a servant, a slave. And it is because of him, who he is, and what he has done that we have been freed up to be the men and women that you have called us to be. And so what we are praying for now is that your Holy Spirit would press these truths upon our hearts and minds this day, and not just this day, but tomorrow as well. Lord, we do not want to be those who are sort of living these compartmentalized lives where we put church in one category and family in another and then work in another and then sort of personal time. No. 
Lord, just as you have broke down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, just as Christ, by the blood of his cross, has, has broke down the wall of partition that separated the holiest of holies from the rest of the temple, so we pray that in your grace you would shatter these walls that we have erected up in our lives. We want to be Christians all the time, and we want to live and think and operate as Christians, even in our vocations that you have called us to. So help us to be faithful to this end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.